Hi again, folks, and welcome back to NTI's Japan Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Zivna Kojima again. Thanks for joining us today, and also thanks to everyone who registered for our next Japan Real Estate Investment Webinar. Um, that's now been finalized, scheduled, and will be held on May 10th, which is a Sunday, 8 p.m. Japan time. So that's the same day and time slot as last time, which seems to be the most convenient for most of you. Mind you, if you're joining us from North or South America, this probably means early Sunday morning or even around midnight on Saturday for some of you, as the case uh, and time zone may be. And as we've mentioned, we're going to be talking about the ins and outs of the purchase process and, of course, due diligence, do a few more deal analysis breakdowns and, of course, lots of Q&A. We're also going to be briefly touching about some additional topics which you've asked to uh, cover in your registration forms. So stuff like Japanese real estate investment trusts, uh, JREITs, and also about current market conditions, or more specifically, uh, how and why to invest during the COVID-19 outbreak, which, by the way, in spite of what some governments might want you to think, doesn't seem to be over just yet. So yeah, pretty excited for this next webinar. Hope to have you with us. But if you uh, can't make it, it will be recorded and available for you to tune into down the track as well, of course. Okay, so for our topic today, uh, this is also going to be our topic next time, and this one's all about us, or more generally about buyers, agents, and portfolio managers like us, although in Japan specifically, there are probably not too many companies who provide these sort of services, aside from us, as far as we're aware, at least. So this first episode is a recording of a business call with a new client who's entering the market for the first time, and he's asking about the benefits of using someone like us to do so. Um, his side of the recording is a little bit low on audio quality, so apologies for that. And our next episode, again, on the same topic, is actually going to be an interview with an existing client. That's the first time uh, we've done this on the show. This is a couple who's been with us for just under a year now, and they've already purchased quite a few properties through us. And they're going to tell us about their personal investment journey and, of course, focus on the reasons and the experience of working through a buyer's agent, in this case, uh, us here at NTI. Okay, so without further ado, here's the first part in the series. Again, a recording of a business call with a new client covering the reasons, benefits, and processes involved in working through a buyer's agent here in Japan. Enjoy, and I'll see you on the other side. All right, go for it. So how can we help? Yeah, so um, as I said in the email, I stumbled upon your YouTube channel um, quite a while back and just kind of periodically looking at um, some of the videos and uh, I'm, I'm just I'm, you know I live in New York so buying property here, property here is pretty unrealistic for me at the moment I've tried <laughs> um, I've tried to break through several times but it's just not really it's just the prices are so inflated that you know I'm exploring some other other avenues I, I lived in Japan for four years so um and I and I had and I had done some studying on my own about Japanese real estate. So I'm just uh, you guys are the first company that I really kind of fell into that do that like I'm, I don't know if there are other companies similar to you, but I, I reading what I read, I'm I'm just interested in in, in you know checking some things out. And, yeah, there's um, um, there's local agents in each and every city um, that can deal. Let's say Tokyo would have five or six um, agents that have got English-speaking staff and uh, Osaka maybe two or three, Fukuoka has got one or two. So the bigger cities all have local agents, um, right. obviously just a fraction of the number that's out there that actually can deal with foreigners. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but I'm, I'm not aware of too many companies that do nationwide, or at least not nationwide on um, on any entry level. So there are bigger international brokers that can handle um, bigger transactions. Oh, so what you do is pretty unique to your company, you would say? Yeah, there's been a few that have started doing that, I think, in the last two years or so, but they're all pretty limited, again, location-wise. We're the only ones that I'm aware of that can do it nationwide and even for the cheaper properties. Okay. Um, yeah, so you mentioned that, um, and I know it's kind of uh, conducive or kind of the way that Japanese society works, that you ha- you have to kind of develop these relationships with realtors and, and people who are putting these these houses on the market. Is that how, is that kind of, how would you describe that part of your business? Like, how do you, how, uh, is that what gets you the, pro- the, the listings that you get? Like those relationships? Um, well, it's a mix. I mean, on the one hand, we're, uh, this whole, all of this relationship building stuff only really works if you've got a Japanese face to put out to those companies. Right. Um, so we've, we've sort of got that covered and we've perfected our pitch. Like in the beginning, um, most of them, as soon as they heard there's a foreigner on the other line, wouldn't even uh, talk to us. So these days we've um, managed to perfect our pitch in the sense that we immediately let them know that they'll never have to, you know, talk to a scary foreigner and they'll never have to speak English or, or handle English documentation or any of that sort. Okay. And we um, we show them straight off the bat. We show them the um, the customers give us a limited power of attorney document, which means that we can represent them in any of their property dealings here. Yeah, I read through some of that stuff. That's yeah. Interesting. So yeah. That, that puts their mind at ease. And now we get, I guess, maybe 70, 80 percent. Uh, I mean, 20, 30 percent would still refuse to deal with foreigners even through a proxy. But most of them, most of them are OK with that if we present it right. And then yeah. the deals that we get are a mix. So we start off by doing um, obviously there's, you know, a gazillion property uh, brokers and realtors in Japan. So we we search the Internet first for listings. And then once we've done a deal or two with a particular realtor, then they start sending us listings before they actually publish them online. So via PDF that they send to their investors list. Um, okay. So some of the deals come through the private lists. Uh, some of them are still online and there's a good selection on both ends. Got it. Um, and then, uh, so when Preeti sent me a list of some listings, those seemed like they were, they're not necessarily mortgage type properties. They're just for purchase at the price that they're listed at, like 2 million yen or 3 million yen, whatever it is that they're listed at. Is that correct? That's correct. I mean, mortgages, investment mortgages for um, non-resident foreigners are available, but the criteria is still pretty strict. So in some cases, okay. they only go for very central Tokyo or Osaka properties. Some cases, um, they want you to um, buy a property that's a mini- minimum of 20 million yen and then your cash deposit, um, they provide 60 to 70% LTV. So your cash deposit is pretty high. Right. Um, but the cheaper oh. ones, the cheaper ones do go for um, the, the ones that you purchase in cash can be pretty cheap. But you've mentioned in your email that you've got um, twenty thousand. I'm guessing you meant US, yeah? Yeah, yeah, US. Uh, twenty thousand US is not going to get you anything in any of the bigger cities. That's going to be um, okay. in most cases. That's going to be a second tier. Uh, recently, prices have dropped slightly in. Um, Fukuoka, so we see two and a half million yen or three million yen here that we haven't seen for a good few years. 
Um, but mostly you're looking at places like uh, Kumamoto, some of the satellite cities uh, around Tokyo and Osaka, smaller places usually. That's not to say they're bad, but it's not um, capital growth potential wise. They're not as attractive as the bigger cities, but the yields are higher. Right. The rental yields, yeah. Okay, right, okay. Um, so I, I, I know you mentioned this in one of the publishings that you sent me as well, but um, so the, the conditions of the apartment or the building are pretty much unknown to the buyer as well, though, right? It's, it's not, not a risk that... that not not the building, not the building, just the interior of the unit, and that's only okay. if, you're, if you're buying tenanted. If you're buying vacant, then you can definitely inspect the interior. But if you want to buy tenanted and you want the income to sort of start from day one, which means you're purchasing a property with a tenant already in there, um, in those cases, because of tenancy laws in Japan, there's no inspections or so forth. So we're basing it only on what the tenant has reported or hasn't reported as being faulty over the years. Okay. And are, typically, are, are, are the apartments that um, are up for sale, are they difficult to, 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 to get tenants for them? Or? We would try to aim, um, I mean, we wouldn't recommend anything in an area or a property profile that we don't feel comfortable enough uh, that would be easy enough to tenant. Um, so, I mean, it's it's always your final call. If... You right there? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sorry about that. Yeah. So, I mean, the final call is always yours. You can tell us, no, we, I definitely want to go for that property, even though, you know, we say it might be more difficult to tenant. But if you follow our recommendation, it'd usually be pretty easy to tenant. Okay. Um, uh, I, I had a question about the um, earthquake standards on the buildings in uh, pre-81 buildings and then, like, anything after that. Yep. Um, can you just tell me the difference between those two and how, like, what does that matter to how that matters to the the landlord at all? Yeah. So the um, the 1981 benchmark is for reinforced concrete buildings. So if you're looking at the older, smaller, um, say, two, three floor apartment buildings that are sometimes a uh, wood or steel framed wood. Um, those building standards haven't changed much, definitely not in 1981, but the bigger concrete blocks, so if you're looking at anything that's above four or five floors, that's usually going to be reinforced concrete. And for those, uh, 1981 was the June 19, anything built after June 1981 or approved to build after June 1981 uh, was already up to the latest uh, earthquake resistance standards that they're using now for those blocks. Um and that, I mean, it's it's a guideline and a benchmark, but it's a case-by-case -case thing. So sometimes when we look at the due diligence for any particular building, um, we'll sometimes see older buildings, uh, say built in 1978 or 1980, um, that are very well maintained, especially the bigger monsters like the 100, 200-unit blocks. And sometimes we'll see younger buildings um, that are up to the latest standards but have been a little bit mismanaged. So renovation hasn't been that good or the reserve fund the pool is depleted. Um, so we'd actually, in that case, we'd actually feel safer with the older one just because it's being well maintained and brought up to speed. Um, right. So, but, I mean, the other danger with the older blocks is that they're at the age where developers will start looking at them and start making offers to purchase them. Um, so, I mean, 
And that can sometimes be a good deal, but often not. I mean, sometimes they'll just uh, offer a really low price and try to scare the owners into selling. Um, so, I mean, the, the 1981 for reinforced concrete is probably, um, it's a good benchmark to start off with, but then we have to examine a case-by-case -case thing. Okay. Um, so, I'm just wondering, if you own, if you own a, an apartment in an old building, and I'm assuming the earthquake standards are getting better and more sophisticated as time goes on, are there... Like, what are the chances that an old building can become condemned or can, like, um, maybe be sold or something that is out of the landlord's control? That, has that ever happened before or something similar to that? Um, we haven't had anything um, condemned or demolished. That ha We haven't bought anything uh, this old. Um, but again, once 1970, let's say 1980 and under, we do occasionally get um, developers try to buy them from the owners. Okay. And if the owners um, co-op, if, if they get more than 80% of the uh, owners to vote yes for the sale, then it's out of your hands. Then it's going to be sold at whatever price they agree on. Um, we've had attempts by developers to do this on some of the buildings that our customers own, but they haven't actually succeeded yet, so I can't really testify. Um, out of, say, uh, 200, 250 properties that we managed and, and facilitated now, we've had maybe four or five uh, purchase attempts by developers, but none of them have actually gone through yet. So, I mean, what, do you have any advice for somebody like me who's, like, first time getting into this? Like, is it better for me to go with a with a property in the $20,000 range to kind of just, you know, li limit my losses if I do, if I do, like, just to kind of learn the system and um, figure out how being a landlord from overseas it, is like? Or, I mean, is it better for me to try to, you know, break in at a higher level? Um, in, in a bigger city? Well, that would depend on on your circumstances. So number one, it would depend on what your total budget is. We, we would suggest to diversify if you can. So if your budget allows you to buy two or three units, that's probably better. Um, just so in case a tenant moves out, you're not you know 100% out on your income stream, you still got income coming in. And um, the other thing is... Um, do you have any other investments in any other vehicles? I mean, what's your investment portfolio looking like in other places? Yeah, I mean, not in terms of real estate, but um, I have other investments in um, my 401k, stocks and bonds, pension, uh, cryptocurrency, things like that. Okay, so putting the cryptocurrency aside for a moment, the rest of your investments sound like they're probably low yield but high, high value, I mean, potential growth. Okay, and the crypto is giving you high dividends. Is that a large, uh, large portion of your portfolio? How how are you doing there? Um, I mean, it, the the market's very volatile. It's down right now. I mean, I'm hope, hoping that you know, it, in 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 the near future, it it will, you know, change change course. Yeah. But we're we're, we're kind of I think crypto owners are are um, in a down market right now. So. Okay, so the rest of your investments are looking um, more long-term, nothing that's generating um, high return on a monthly basis, correct? No, that's, and that's kind of what I'm looking for.
into something that I, you know, I'm receiving uh, re- regular income, cash flow. Okay, and what's your um, what's your max budget on this? You know, I, I mean, it's I I think I would say somewhere probably like thirty thousand dollars U.S. dollars. Um, I I I could potentially go higher, but I just I want to make sure that it's a it's an investment that obviously nothing's guaranteed, but I do want to you know. I, I think I know a place like Tokyo a lot better, and I would be comfortable investing somewhere like that. And I think obviously that would take take a little bit more money than what I had originally, um, you know, let you know, uh, told told you guys I'm willing to invest. So like I I think I'm I'm still probably in that preliminary stage of looking at a lot of these um, looking at these deals that are coming through and looking at the balance sheets and what um, the the deal analysis stuff and kind of getting used to that. So. But I, I would, I think I'd be willing to go a little bit higher than what what I had said to you originally. Well, in Tokyo specifically, we haven't seen anything that's um, under about six million yen yet. It might go down further, but that's as far as it's gone so far. Um, so six million—that's about fifty-five thousand if you want to purchase in Tokyo, and even that, we don't see many of them. Okay. Um, but Maybe those are, those are those are like purchase prices of the house. That's not what you 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 guys wouldn't help in in like attaining a mortgage. Uh, we can definitely we can put you in touch with the lender. But the thing is, um, the lenders that I'm aware of that would lend to non uh, non resident foreigners are either um, well, there's Oryx in Hong Kong, but they require you to have Hong Kong residency or a Hong Kong company, so that's out. There's Shinsei Investment in Finance uh, in Japan, but they require you to set up a company and purchase under the company name. Okay. And then company upkeep costs um, are about 2000 bucks a year, so probably not worth it for the budget that you're talking about. Okay. Um, uh, the only other one would be there's UOB in Singapore. They don't require a company set up. Um, and they lend for apartments in fairly central locations. So you're probably looking at a loan. Um, let me just see if I can quickly see what they told us last time. Give me a sec. But I think their minimum is 20 million yen. And then they'll need you to put um, 30, 40% of that in cash. So again, that's over your budget, I think, even the cash deposit. That would okay. mean that you need to put in at least um, fifty fifty five thousand US. Okay, and now okay. So say say I had um, fifty thousand US dollars. I mean, would you say that my money would go a lot further in a smaller city? Like, what if I, I? I'm I'm assuming it would, but would that give me better yields potentially, or not necessarily? Yeah, I mean, for fifty thousand US, we might be able to get two apartments, which is always okay. better than one if it's a smaller city. Okay. Um, so or like two apartments similar to like the ones that you guys have been sending me now in like the twenty probably two two point five million range kind of thing. Yeah, so that would get you okay. one one apartment in uh, second tier cities like Fukuoka, Nagoya, Kyoto, uh, maybe some of the satellite cities around Tokyo. Um, or it would get you two units in smaller places like uh, Kumamoto, uh, maybe Sendai or uh, Utsunomiya, that sort of place. 
potentially. So not huge on the capital growth front, but the yields could be as high as 8 maybe 9% net pre-tax if we're lucky. Uh, whereas if you buy it, if you buy a single property in, say, Fukuoka or Nagoya for that amount, you're probably looking at uh, six, seven percent tops. Okay. Um, can I ask you another question about just like maybe prior client clients of yours or just? I mean, my I guess my long term, like if if I were to get into this, um, t you know, Japan uh, rental prop. Uh, rental properties and continually, you know, like every maybe two or three years purchasing a, a new or a new uh, property, um, long-term growth. I mean, is that some people's plan to just kind of keep adding small one, one room apartments and building up their, um, their like collecting properties in that, in that manner? Is that anyone's experience that you work with? Is that a, is that a, a decent plan? Yeah, that's uh, that's most of them. That's most of them, actually, including ourselves yeah. personally. That's what we do. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. So, for me, starting out with one small property is probably isn't is not necessarily a a, a, bad, a bad move on my part. Um, that's what most of our um, clients do, or at least the smaller ones. I mean, once in a while, we get like a family office or. Um, some retiree who's pretty well off, and they start off immediately with a hundred or two hundred thousand. But most of them start okay. with one or two of the smaller units, and then a year, two years down the track, they've built up further income, and they're happy with the process, and then they come in with a little bit more. Okay, cool. And then just lastly, like, um, so what? I, and I, I did read through the materials that you have um, you sent me, and uh, but just in general, general what? Um, what would benefit? What's the benefit of me going through a company like yours, uh, other rather than you know contact, contacting one of those um, other English-speaking Japanese real estate agents on the ground there? Like, what do you guys think you do differently or better than than they might for a foreign investor? Uh, well, for the one thing, your selection is pretty limited. If you contact these companies again, so again, we're putting Tokyo out. Of the picture for now just budget wise okay. um, so other cities would have somewhere between one to three realtors who can deal with foreigners and so you're just limited in your selection to whatever these guys want to sell okay. and the other thing is that being realtors they're interested in making particular sales on particular listings that they've got on stock um, or just generally interested in making a sale whereas we're buyers agents so we're we're not invested or interested in, in any particular listing. We're just interested in making sure that you get the best result. Okay. And then yeah. we can also, we also give you a, I mean, we, we like to think, and I think most of our customers would agree that we, our fee is more than covered by the fact that we, number one, do negotiations on your behalf, okay. uh, which a realtor would be less interested in because that makes their commission smaller as well. And the other thing is that um, just with, Due diligence and the sort of information that we get um, just because we're experienced and we know how to get it and we know when to say no to a deal, um, we probably save you a lot more than that um, just in costly mistakes kind of thing, that's all. Uh, I, would, I would assume that was a big part of it too. Yeah, yeah. no, I, um, I, I think going through a real estate agent on my own, I, I make many mistakes and that's, I felt a lot more comfortable reading through uh, a lot of your 
I mean, don't don't get me wrong. They're all Japanese, so they're not going to swindle you or run away with your cash kind of thing. But they are mostly interested in just making the sale. And then we also represent you for managing the portfolio down the track. So any mistakes we make in the purchase process come back to bite us on the bum later. And whereas the realtor just makes the sale and buggers off, so they don't really care what happens after that. Right. And you guys look for, I mean, you guys get the, like, tenant, the, the tenant history of the property. I mean, are you looking at that information, too? Like, is this, is this apartment rentable? Yeah, so if it's, if, it's tenanted, if it's tenanted, the tenant history is a very large part of the due diligence. Um, the tenant profile, the tenant history, and if it's uh, vacant, then um, we don't have a tenant history, but we still look at the area, we look at comparable um, available properties in that area, what they're renting for, what the average rent is that you could possibly get. Okay. And the last part of due diligence is the building renovation history and the building reserve fund pool. So we want to see those two correlate in the sense that... Um, if the uh, funds pool is depleted, we want to see some big renovations in the last 10 years or so, just to make sure there's not a, another big one coming straight after you buy. Okay. Which, so if, if a renovation comes up, are there fees associated with that that the owners of the apartments need to um, pay for? Well, that's what we want to avoid. So long term, of course, as the building gets older, it takes more renovation and more maintenance. But we want to see that the reserve fund pool is capable of handling that so that they've collected enough and set it aside for that. Um, and then if and when the pool is depleted, then they might bring the monthly fees up, but they're not going to hit people up for a one-off payment of a few thousand dollars suddenly. Um, and on the other hand, if they got a, if there's no big renovations in the last 10 years and there's probably one coming up because there is one every 15 or 20 years, depending on the age of the building, we want to see that the reserve fund pool has enough in it to cover that. So they're not going to immediately raise the fees significantly. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Makes sense. Um, and then just in terms of this like tax liabilities and things like that, would I pay Japanese taxes or... U.S. taxes or, well, or both or how does that work? Japan and the U.S. Um, have a, a tax treaty in place. So that means that yeah. you, you firstly get taxed in Japan as per your Japanese income and they don't care about your income overseas. So you're going to be pretty okay. low bracket. Um, okay. If you're just buying one or two properties, then you're probably going to be tax free for the first three, four years at least because you're going to be under the okay. reporting threshold because you can claim all of the purchase and running costs and carry them forward for three years. And then once you, once you file your tax statement in Japan, you take a copy of that and you give it to your accountant or to your tax rep gotcha. in the USA, and then they charge you for the difference. So if, you're, um, if your tax threshold is higher in the US, they'll deduct what you've paid in Japan and just tax you for the remainder of that. Okay. Okay. All right. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's about it. you answered most of my questions <laughs> yep um, so again if you if 50-55 is your limit probably not Tokyo yeah and probably not Osaka as well but any other city um, would probably do well so okay. it, it'll just be a matter of deciding whether you want to go for the uh, one second tier pro uh, second tier city property or maybe two of third tier city properties so okay. it's a sort of diversity versus um, rental yield versus capital growth potential play kind of thing. Right. And um, is, there, is there a limit on foreigners owning or 
number of properties foreigners can own in Japan? No, it's the only uh, it's the only country in Asia Pacific that doesn't have limits actually. Um, I mean, they do want to know about the purchases. So the Bank of Japan keeps tab on foreigners buying property. We have to report to them that you've purchased it because they want to know um, how much of the property market is owned by foreigners. Okay. But there's no limit. I mean, there's some culturally protected uh, heritage kind of properties, but that's a very small portion of the market, and we don't really deal in those. All right, yeah. Well, no, uh, uh, thank you for taking the time to talk to me, and um, I think I learned a lot from you answered all my questions. Yeah, I mean, at this point, what would you recommend that I do? Just get on, look at the listings that you send me, um, study those data analysis sheets. Um, what, what, where should I go from here if I'm interested in taking this further? Um, well, the sort of um, the property profiles that you're looking at is probably what we research the most on behalf of all of our customers. So we we okay. should be able to provide you with a steady stream of samples. Um, which you're saying you've already been receiving some of those, yeah? Just today, yeah, for the first time I got some. Okay. So, I mean, we will keep sending you samples and you look at them. And, you know, when you're comfortable making an offer or moving forward on conducting due diligence and so forth, we'll need, um, we'll need you to sign and have witnessed a couple of documents that allow us to represent you here. Okay. And also to uh, pay our fee estimate uh, in advance and then post purchase we're going to credit or debit you as per the actual purchase price so say you're assuming that your max budget is 50,000 but you end up purchasing something that's 40 or 60 and then post settlement will credit or debit based on that okay okay so basically um you guys you have to have i i, I have to basically wire you guys money in in the ballpark figure that i'm willing to spend and then when i want to make a move we we jump on it but just for our fee, not the entire. You don't need to. You don't need to wire us the entire purchase amount. Just our fee, which is five percent of that. Okay. 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 And so then, I mean, how quickly do you have to act on these on some of these properties? I mean, if I see something that I like and I'm I'm interested in it, how um, quickly do I have to get? Well, the cheap the cheaper ones go very quickly. So sometimes it's a matter of a day or two from the moment they're listed if they're an attractive enough deal. Um, definitely within a week they'll be spoken for if they're good. Um, okay. And we can't actually put an offer in without being engaged first. So if you do want to be able to get your foot in the door quick, probably recommend to get those forms and that uh, invoice sorted first. Okay. Um, and then we can put in an offer. So we put in the offer first just so that the realtor and the seller start providing due diligence information because they're, they're not going to do that before they got an offer on the table. And then we can pull the offer back. If any of the information we receive is less than satisfactory, we can pull the offer back. And then, um, so in, in the end, it's up to me, the buyer, to determine whether the property is worth looking at or purchasing or not. Correct. And, and we'll, you, we'll obviously you, support you in that. Excuse me? We'll obviously support you in that. I mean, we'll help you make the right decision, but it's your call. Right. Okay. So, so you'll say... You'll, it, it, because I'm not there and I don't know the building and, and all that, I mean, I can talk to someone with you guys and just kind of talk through whether it's a good deal or not and what whether we whether I think I should move forward and you'll give, you guys can give me some feedback on that. Correct. Is that typical or no? Yep, that's exactly how it works. Okay, okay. Mm -hmm. Excellent. All right. Well, thanks so much, Deb. I appreciate it.
the call. My pleasure. So you keep looking at the samples that Pretty sends you, and if okay. you're feeling confident that you might want to put in an offer on something soon, just let her or myself know, and we'll kick off the engagement process then. Great. All right. Sounds perfect. All right. Great. Thanks for that. Have a good night. You too. Take care. Good night. Bye. So oh, there you have it. This hopefully explains uh, why many people do choose to work with a buyer's agent and portfolio manager as opposed to working directly with various realtors, property managers, and so forth. And um, this is obviously more beneficial for particular types of investors. So mainly those who are working remotely, looking for more diversity and hedging and not specifically in just one location. And of course, also for anyone who finds it challenging for any reason to access the market, whether it's because they're looking outside of Tokyo, Osaka, Niseko, and the rest of those handful of locations, which do have more internationally oriented uh, companies that they can work with. So language, cultural considerations, and also anyone who simply doesn't have the time or the interest or the language skills or both um, to do everything hands-on. And aside from all of that, working with someone who's on your side, doesn't have any interest in specific properties or deals, and also has the professional know-how and the experience to save you money and point you in all the right directions. Obviously, huge benefits there as well. And if any of those benefits appeal to you, this might be the way that you might choose to go as well. Now, again, for our next episode on the same theme, we're going to be speaking with a lovely couple who's already been working with us for quite some time. So you'll hear a lot about what their investment journey was like, what led them to choose um, Japan generally and our company specifically, what their experience investing here in Japan has been like, and quite a few other interesting tidbits. So stay tuned. Now, the webinar, as we mentioned, is going to be on Sunday, May 10th. That's next week at the time of this recording. You can simply join in on the day itself. No need to pre-register anymore. But if you do have some particular questions or topics that you do want us to try and answer live for you on the day, um, even though we've already received plenty of those, so I'm not sure how much time we'll have left for more, but you can definitely try. So we're going to link to the webinar page uh, again in this episode's show notes. And that page already has the registration link, but also has the link for you to join on the day itself. So again, no need to pre-register. You can just hop on and join us next weekend. So that's it from us for today, folks. Hope you're all still staying at home as much as possible. Um, again, this isn't quite over yet. Don't be too complacent. Stay home, stay safe, save lives. And as always, we'd really appreciate it if you could share this episode with your own networks anyone really whom you might think benefits from the content that we cover here. And please, please, please take a moment of your time to leave us a review or at least a star rating on the iTunes store, if that's where you're tuning in from. And to quote Gary V again, your word of mouth is very much our oxygen, our lifeline. So we truly, truly appreciate your ratings and reviews. Um, they really help us uh, to keep doing what we love doing most and helps you and others like you who enjoy, benefit, and profit, hopefully, from this content as well. Hope to have you with us again next time, as well as at the webinar. And until then, from all of us here at NTI, Yoshiku.